All right, Alexander, let's uh, let's talk again about Putin's meeting with Erdogan, but let's um, focus in on a specific statement that Putin made, which is not connected to Turkey, not connected to the grain deal, not connected to BRICS, uh, but is connected to the Ukraine big counteroffensive. And Putin said that the counteroffensive is not stalled. I think it's a very interesting choice of words. He said it's not stalled, but it looks like it's failed. It looks like it's a failure. And then he followed that up with a statement, let's let's wait and see how it goes. I hope it continues as is. I'm paraphrasing the second part. The first part, I think I got pretty much right, that, that quote. And maybe I'll, I'll look for it as you're, as you're talking. But I think it's very interesting that he said it's not stalled because it shows to me that, that Putin is, understands the narrative that the collective West is trying to, to put on, yes. uh, on the big counteroffensive. Yes. He understands the spin. The, the yes. whole, it's a stalled offensive. He understands that. And he, he, he said it's a failure. Shoigu said the same thing. Yes. Pretty much. Yes. And Shoigu gave, gave a little bit more, uh, you know, in terms of the detail. He went a bit, he was, it wasn't the most detailed statement he's given about the offensive, but he did go, he was a bit more granular. And he's now uh, claimed, and, you know, these are Russian claims, so let's be, you know, this is from Shoigu. Um, but he said that the Ukrainian casualty rates have now increased to 66,000. He's not saying dead, he's not just saying 66,000 dead, he's saying casualties. So that presumably includes wounded, just, just, just to make that point clear. But anyway, but go back to Putin, because Putin is, of course, is the more interesting person. So the offensive has failed, but it's not stalled. In other words, it's continuing. In other words, Ukraine can't stop this offensive. That's how I understood this to mean. So it will continue until, well, who knows? And that's essentially, again, what he's saying, because Ukraine has lost massive numbers of men, large numbers of machines. I think it was, you said on one of your programs, that the BBC is now also publishing material about the enormous extent of Ukraine's losses in this offensive. I mean, people, you know, in cemeteries and those sort of places. This is on the BBC now. It's starting to appear. So huge Ukrainian losses, huge numbers of machines destroyed, no breakthroughs. Now, this is important again to stress because um, once more, I was reading today, this morning in the Daily Telegraph, that Ukraine is about to break through the final line of defense that the Russians have. I mean, this is actually there today in the Daily Telegraph. And of course, when you go into the article itself, the final Russian line of defense is this village of Elbovoye, which is Clearly, they haven't captured, but it's not the final line of defense. It's still absolutely, you know, the first line of defense and they haven't breached it. But, you know, nonetheless, that's what they're saying. So they're talking about the fact that, you know, Ukraine is pushing forward. But what Putin is, it seems to me, saying is it's failed. But the West won't let Ukraine stop. That was the implication that I came away with this. So they're going to have to keep hammering away, incurring more losses, losing more men, losing more machines. There's reports today that a challenger two has been filmed, you know, burning on the steps. The photograph is very indistinct and my vision problems 
can't make make it make it impossible for me to identify. No, it is. Accurately. It is Forbes. It is. Forbes confirmed it. Actually, Forbes co- well, Forbes confirmed it. Well, there you go. Forbes so challenge, Challenger twos now have also burning on the steps, and we can see that they're not really making any progress at all. But they still have to go on. So it's not stalled. It's failing instead. And uh, it also, by talking in that way, by talking about failure rather than a stall, it starts to move the initiative back towards the Russians because it means that from this moment on, it's not a stalemate any law, stalemate anymore. It's a defeat. It's not that Ukraine has reached stalemate. It's that Ukraine is being defeated. And that conceivably, I mean, you know, I'm reading things now into what Putin is saying, and maybe I'm going beyond his exact words, but it could be a sign that now the Russians will start making their own moves. Yeah, let me uh, let me read you the, the quote. I found it here. Uh, Putin said that the Ukrainian operation is not stalled. It's a failure. And quote, at least this is how it looks today. Let's see what happens next. I hope this will continue to be the case. It's like it's just like you said. It's it, it's it's almost like Putin is saying, it's uh, it's not stalled. It's a failure, all right. It hasn't stalled, but they're just going to keep on coming. Let's just see tomorrow and the day after what happens. And it, it's almost like um, he's not. It doesn't seem like he's so absorbed in the in the Rabatinia no. narrative no. as the West is absorbed in no. the Rabatinia narrative. I mean, when you when you read his quote, it, it seems like he's he has that you get the sense that that Russia and, and the military, the Russian military has everything under control, even yes. if Ukraine advances um, a, a kilometer or two kilometers or three kilometers. It doesn't seem like there's this this panic or this worry no. from, from no. Putin. no. No, I mean it was. I mean it shows an incredible amount of sang froid. He's just taking it. I mean, it, it, it has a teasing quality. <laughs> I mean, it's essentially. I mean, he's teasing the West. He's teasing the Ukrainians as he likes to do sometimes. He said, "You know, you haven't stalled. You failed. But you know, if you want to carry on trying, it's up to you." Okay, so I saw the uh, UK Telegraph article as well. What? What is going on here? I, I mean, you, you know, Kirby said three, four days ago, Ukraine is getting to the second line of defense. Forbes said that Ukraine has broken through the first line and is moving towards the second line of defense. Now, all of a sudden, two days, two, three days later, the Telegraph is, is, is saying that they're, they're at the final uh, defense line. When, when you read the article, you can tell that they're being very careful with their words. You know, they're saying a key Russian defense line. N- nowhere in the article are they saying that Ukraine has breached the three main defensive lines that take you all the way to the Sea of Azov. They're very, they're very uh, gray about, about where these lines are located. They don't give, uh, you know, they say Rapatinia, but they don't say Rapatinia's, you know, 60 miles, 60 kilometers away from Melitopol. You know, they just they just throw this stuff out there to mislead the reader into thinking that Ukraine has has just pushed through all of the defensive lines of Russia. But, but you know, this is this is obvious deception. But it's it's also once again you get back to to, to this major disconnect. Yeah. You know, well, 
we're getting what, what, information which says one thing and shows one thing, and, and the Telegraph and Kirby and Kirby is coming out with information which yeah. which just doesn't it doesn't fit. Yeah, you are absolutely correct. I mean, what you're what you're describing is deeply manipulative language. And notice that the article again refers to fighting around Rabotino, which of course the Ukrainians are supposed to have captured and yet the fighting is still going on there. So you know, if you actually go, if you actually unpick it, the detail to those who know contradicts the impression that it's trying to convey. But of course, the vast majority of people who read that article, in you know, people who read the Daily Telegraph, won't know that because you know they're not as invested in time and resources as we are. You know, looking through a magnifying glass at every particular battle, they don't know where Verbovoy is. They don't know where Robotino is. They don't follow this in the kind of detail that we are. But the impression that he's give that is it's seeking to give is that there's some kind of big Ukrainian breakthrough, that the final line has been reached. And, of course, what is the final line is being constantly, or what is any line of defence, is being constantly adjusted to suit whatever particular narrative you're trying to discuss. So the article says that they're breaching the final line of Russian defence. Then it turns out, when you go through the article, it's a line of Russian defence, and when you actually are able to compare that with the maps and the facts on the ground, which, as I said, if you followed the war carefully, as we have, you would know. Well, the line of defense that's been talked about is the one that Ukraine has been bashing its head against ever since the offensive began in June. So that, that's, that's essentially what, where, where we are. I mean, you know, they've not really progressed at all since June. But that's the, the article wants to convey a completely different impression. When people use manipulative language, you need to be very careful about what they're about, because they're trying to persuade you of something that isn't factually true. <laughs> Is Verbove the final line of defense? No. In the Serovican line? No. I mean, you know, it's... Right, the Sudovikin line... Here, here, here's a line from the article, Alexander, of one yeah. sentence. Kiev's forces had reached fighting positions near Verbove in southern Zaporozhye region, said George Baros, a Russian analyst at the Institute for the Study of War. Yeah. yeah. So, the, the Verbovoye... Now, yeah, I've had problems understanding this because there's so many different maps. My understanding is that Verbovoye, which is this village, is almost, you know, there, just behind the Surovikin line. So they've reached an area very close to the Surovikin line, and they've actually reached, apparently, Verbovoye, it's in sight of where they are. They haven't reached the Surovikin line, and what we're talking about is not just the first line of defence of the Surovikin line, but some of the early, some of the, you know, the barriers somewhat to the west and north of it. So they haven't breached the Surovikin line. They've, they've approached it, which, by the way, they've been doing now for several, about two weeks mm -hmm. in this particular area, not yeah. elsewhere. And yeah, there's, right, the uh, there's at though. least, yes, and there's at least two no, big further lines behind, which, of course, they're nowhere close to. And, you know, those are 
kilometers behind them in the rear. Yeah, you, you know, it's really frustrating reading these articles. You have to you have to read them like 10 times to try yes. and figure out what the truth is yeah. because they're they're very very manipulative and careful with the words they use. For example, the first sentence is as you said, Ukrainian troops have reached the third and final layer of a key Russian line of defense, according to Warren Ellis. I mean, you have to really think about that sentence. They've reached the final layer of a key Russian line of defense. And then they say about Verdove that Verdove is a, the settlement is a nodal point in the so-called Serovikan line the main line of Russian defenses in the area. I mean, you really, you know, you just can't read one of these articles one time and no. get to the truth. No. You have to read it over and over again and pick apart every yes. single yes. word yes. to try and get to some truth. Yes, but you see, when they do that, and let, let me repeat again, when people do this sort of thing, it's because they're having to conceal something. And what they're concealing is the fact that Ukraine is stuck. I mean, that's, that's, that's really what it amounts to. If there had been a real breakthrough, you wouldn't need manipulative language. You'd be able to say it straightforwardly. Yeah. Okay, so what is the situation? Let's just get to, to, to how we see it, how you see it. Uh, what, what does it look like right now? Well, as of, as of this morning, and you know, as Putin said, this is always a dynamic situation, but as of this morning, it looks to me as if uh, the Ukrainians have still failed to make any real progress at all. Rabotino remains contested. There's still Russian troops either just outside it or in the southern areas, and the Ukrainians have not been able to consolidate control of Rabotino. They've been sending light infantry, and apparently it is only infantry towards Verbovoye. And this particular defensive belt that we've been talking about near Verbovoye, but they haven't breached it. They certainly haven't managed to capture Verbovoye itself. So they're still, in effect, stuck. And, you know, the great defensive barriers, the, the greater part of them, is still well away from where they are. They haven't, in fact, made any significant progress at all. That, that is my own understanding and reading of the situation. And uh, elsewhere? Uh, it's the same. It's the north. same. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you brought up Bakhmut because as I've been explaining in my own, on my own channel, if you look again, you know, this is, for, this is information from the Russians, but... So, you know, you can you can argue with it if you wish, but the Russians have been providing what they say are casualty figures for the losses that the Ukrainians have been suffering. You don't have to accept the numbers, but they do perhaps reflect the intensity of the fighting. And if you read Russian accounts, the most intense fighting by far continues to be in and around Bakhmut. That's where the real big battles are happening and where the largest number of people wounded and killed are to be found. And again, despite the fact that there are no great defensive lines in and around Bakhmut because the Russians had no time to build them, it looks as if the Ukrainians are stuck there as well. They've not managed to capture this village of Klesheyevka, which they've been trying to capture since the beginning of May. They're still stuck outside it. Sometimes they advance towards it. Sometimes they're able to capture a few outlying buildings. 
but they're always pushed back in the end. And there's no progress there at all. And further north, around Kupiansk and the Oskol River, um, the Russians continue to make progress. And Shoigu was talking about that in these comments he made yesterday. Okay, let's let's talk about two more stories real quickly. Um, I want to get your thoughts on the missile strike close to the Romanian border, because it looks like the it doesn't look like the the Alecki government they tried to pull another like Polish farmland missile incident. Remember yes. that one where the missile yeah. landed in Poland in some farmland, and uh, Zelensky tried to tried to get NATO involved by saying this was Russia hitting at Poland, and it was later proven that this was not the case. Uh, thank God to, to social media, because photos started to emerge of the actual missile, and that disproved uh, Elensky's uh, claims. We had kind of the same incident uh, happening close to the border of Romania, but this time we have the Romanian government itself coming out and saying, no, we, we weren't hit by Russian missiles, there was never a threat. Uh, this is just false what the Ukraine government is saying. So I want yeah. to get your thoughts on that. And then close out the video by giving your thoughts on the new Minister of Defense, uh, Mr. Umerov. The BBC, they have an article on him, a profile on uh, Mr. Umerov, who is Ukraine's next defense minister. And both the BBC and uh, the NBC, um, outside of the, the profile that they give about this guy, uh, the the part that, that really struck me, and, and he is a pretty pretty weird dude. By the way, there's some pretty weird stuff about him floating around, but uh, whatever. Uh, the the interesting part about, I think, the, the articles that are coming out about Umerov is how they're explaining Reznikov's dismissal. And they're doing their very best to say that Reznikov was not dismissed because of the counteroffensive. He was dismissed because of corruption. This is Zelensky's way of cracking down on corruption. In other words, Reznikov was deeply corrupt, and so Zelensky removed him. But it has nothing to do with the progress of the counteroffensive. I think that's that's pretty uh, interesting how they're how they're scapegoating uh, Reznikov and how they're positioning Reznikov's dismissal. Anyway, uh, your thoughts on Romania, well, right? The missile strike, and then let's just talk a bit about uh, Umerov. Right. Well, first of all, I mean the, the missile strike is important in itself because it shows that the Russians are still going after Ukraine's. Uh, you know, Black Sea ports, and they, they are still acting to basically close down those ports to make more tr um, shipping from those ports all but impossible. And I've been hearing some reports from ship owners which basically say that increasingly people are very, very wary about sending their ships into this area. And it's n completely unsurprising. The key thing, the, the more important story about this is exactly the one that you said, that the Ukrainians have tried to involve the Romanians in this affair. They've just said that this missile fell. Well, they, they were trying to imply that this was somehow an attack on Romania. And the Romanians not only denied that, and they said that there was no danger to Romania at all. I got the strong impression that they were actually very annoyed by what the Ukrainians were trying to do. And by the way, this tracks a very strange and unexplained spat between Estonia and Ukraine following the attack on that airbase near Pskov. Pskov, as we know, is much closer to Estonia than it is to uh, Ukraine. 
There were some rumours that the attack was launched from Estonia. Estonian officials came out and said that the attack on Pskov was absolutely senseless. It made no sense. It achieved nothing. And again, I get the sense that just as the Romanians are very nervous, despite you know the enormous amount of support that they've been giving to Ukraine, they don't want to be drawn into the war. The Estonians have been even more supportive of Ukraine. They don't want to be drawn into the war either. Now, given these very strong statements from Estonia and from Romania, that means that suggests to me that any ideas that might have existed a few months ago are creating a coalition of the willing, bringing troops into uh, um, um, Ukraine from the Baltic states and from Russia, from, from, sorry, from Romania and other countries, that they're gradually uh, uh, seeping away. People in these countries, in Estonia, in Romania, are now seeing what's actually happening on the battlefields, and they say, we don't want to be involved in all of this. This is turning into a debacle, and we don't want to be drawn into it. We don't want to see our own people uh, killed, and we want to keep the war as far away from us as possible. So I think that is important in that respect. And it also shows that Kiev's attempts to involve these other countries in some way is, you know, either by talking up this attack on the Black Sea port or, or by launching attacks on air bases, Russian air bases, close to Estonia. None of this is, um, you know, the people in these countries, Romania and Estonia, are very angered about it. They don't look with favour upon Ukrainian attempts to involve them in that way. Now, very interesting about Resnikov, and I think this is an important story, because Resnikov has been a big figure. I mean, he's been the person who's been going around the various Western countries, getting them to provide the tanks and the armoured vehicles, whatever else he's been. He's been a very, very effective, um, shall we say, voice. You, you almost call him a salesman, except, of course, he's not selling anything. He's, you know, he's not even buying anything because he's getting most of these weapons from free, as far as I understand. But he's been going around all these Western countries telling them, give us tanks, give us missiles, give us aircraft, give us helicopters, give us everything you have. And, uh, and the West up to now has been giving them. And he's also had all of these connections with all of these um, Western ministries all these defence ministries. We've just seen that Ben Wallace, who's the British defence minister, has also been basically sacked. Wallace and Reznikov supposedly got on extremely well, and now they're both gone. And I can't help but think that the reason he's gone, the real reason he's going, is because a lot of people in Europe, and perhaps even in the United States, feel very, very angry that Reznikov, and by the way, Zaluzhny, sold them a pup. They said, you know, give us the tanks, give us these machines, we'll launch this offensive. The offensive will be this spectacular success. And of course, it hasn't been. And there's all these embarrassing pictures of Leopard 2s and Bradleys and now Challenger 2s burning on the Ukrainian steppes or the southern steppes. And that's made the West very, very angry. And they're very angry with Reznikov. And I suspect they're probably 
angry with Zeluzhny also. So they wanted Reznikov out, and he's out. They also probably were unhappy with some of the tactics that the Ukrainians have been adopting. The Ukrainians have been um, attacking in many places. Reznikov has seemed to be supportive of all of this. Um, there's been the fighting in Bakhmut. He's been supportive of the battle in Bakhmut. The West wants Ukraine to concentrate everything that he's got left now on breaking through in Zaporozhye region towards Crimea. So what do they do? They look around for the one official in the Ukrainian government who is from Crimea. He's a Crimean Tatar, Mr. Umerov. He's a complete civilian. He's got no background in military affairs. He has no uh, contacts, historic contracts with the Ukrainian army, but he is from Crimea. He's a Crimean Tatar, so presumably, as far as the West con is concerned, he will want to advance on Crimea so he can return to his homeland. That's presumably the calculation there. As you said, he's a complicated man with an interesting background, uh, but, you know, that's less important. And the fact that um, he's got no military experience or background at all, well, that's not really a problem. You just want him to focus on Crimea. And you talk about corruption. Well, of course, um, Reznikov, you accuse him of corruption, probably. Um, it's true. <laughs> he, he probably has been corrupt in some ways. If you went after every Ukrainian official who was corrupt, you wouldn't find, you wouldn't be left with any Ukrainian officials at all. Umerov is head of Ukraine's property fund. <laughs> I mean, the I'm not talking, I'm not making any allegations now, but the possibilities of corruption there must be many times greater, one would assume. But anyway, that apparently doesn't apply to him. So that's, that's, that's the story about corruption. You don't want to talk about the failed offensive, because as we discussed earlier in this programme, well, as far as the West is concerned, you know, the offensive is an amazing success. After all, Kirby is telling us so. And so is the Daily Telegraph in that rather complicated article we were discussing. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's leave it there. Oh, real, real quick, your thoughts on the uh, resurfacing, uh, kind of resurfacing, I don't know, of Sudovican. Yeah, is that is an... No, I don't think it's a photo because apparently, um, I mean, first of all, he's in Sochi. It's a photo that was taken in Sochi. And of course, Putin himself is currently in Sochi, where he's been meeting with um, with Erdogan. Now, that might just be coincidence. But th the fact that this photo has appeared, that, that, that official Russian news agencies are circulating it, um, shows Surovikin with his wife and he's in civilian clothes and he's clearly on leave of some kind. But it clearly is intended to show that he's not under house arrest for anything of that kind, at least not now. And to remind us of the fact that he is there. Now, again, I, mean, I want to stress, I mean, I, my impression is that Surovikin is an extremely capable military commander and uh, he created this defense system, which has been so effective. He took the correct decision in Kherson region. He's also a forceful and dynamic personality. He gave one interview that, you know, showed him 
suggested that. That's the general consensus. I don't know anything at all about Surovikin. I'm not able to judge his military competencies. But the Russian public thinks that he is a brilliant general. And now he's resurfacing, just as there is talk that Russia might be thinking of an offensive of its own. So it seems to me a way of communicating to the general Russian population. No, Surovikin is not in any trouble. He's um, on his way back. He's, re he's resting at the moment in Sochi. He's not in disgrace or anything like that. And we could be seeing him back on the battlefields before very long. I thought the photo was in Moscow. Is it in Sochi? Really? Apparently, it is in I'm, I'm Sochi. Not sure. I, yeah, I'm not sure, so, but apparently, sure. it is in Sochi. Yeah, At least, it's what matter. I. It doesn't matter. No, I, I agree. Yeah. The, the point is that there, he's he's yeah. back. You know, he's, he's back. back. That's he's the, back. That's what the photo's meant to, to say. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The convey. Exactly. Okay. All right. We will. Yeah. We. Yeah. Okay. We will leave it there. The Durand.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, Rockfin, and on Twitter known as X. Uh, Durant Shop, 10% off. Use the code. Good day. <laughs> Take care.